You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little show, please help us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash digging Oak Island to learn more. All right, folks. First of all, um, I just want to apologize for the lack of content this offseason. I know we had a couple of good interviews and we had some stuff right as the season ended, but it things have changed for me. I've got a different job. I'm no longer just a full-time musician. I'm doing some other work. Even at this, even at my advanced age, I'm uh, still looking for employment, and uh, I do have that now. So that's stopped me really from being able to produce much uh, since August. But um, I also kind of wanted to keep my time open and my powder dry, so to speak, in the future for when the season starts, because that's when things really get heated up here on the podcast. So again, for those of you guys who have stuck with us all throughout this entire off season, thank you so much. I apologize for not being on here more often than I have been in past off seasons. It's always an off time for me. I always like to take sort of the summer off because truth be told, podcast downloads go down around that time. And, you know, the content is all really up to me to write and uh, and produce rather than just, uh, you know, reviewing the show and giving you our deep dives into the show. But uh, the show is starting soon. We're going to have more on that in the next podcast. We're only a couple weeks away, actually, maybe three weeks or so away, depending on when you're listening to this, to the start of the new season of The Curse of Oak Island. So things are going to get busy. But on today's podcast, we're going to continue our dive into the history of the dig and discuss this time the Old Gold Salvage Company. But before we get started with that, let me get in another plug here right off the bat for the Patreon page. Uh, if you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you and you would like to see the podcast keep going and remain as ad-free as possible, then please consider becoming a patron of our show. You can go to patreon.com slash Island, and there you can sign up. You'll get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island, and that is coming soon. It is also my favorite part of doing all of this. Come and join us. Uh, and we have some new patrons this summer to thank. I, I don't know if I have them all here. I will certainly get them all for the next show. But uh, there was an anonymous patron with just an email that starts with something that looks like Sable. Whoever you are, thank you so much. Don't be a stranger. Uh, you could certainly go in and change your name now if you didn't want me to announce it. You can put it on there so we know who you are. Um, and thank you, of course, to Gregory and Diane, all becoming patrons. All three of you, thank you so much for your support. It really does mean the world to me. Again, go to patreon.com slash Island to sign up and support the podcast. It's only five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. And if you prefer not to do the monthly thing, sure, you can make a one-time donation. I get that. Just use the Venmo name at Dave McBride Music. That is for when I, that's my virtual tip jar, so to speak, for when I am uh, playing as a musician. So you want to do a one-time donation, that's a great place to do it. It's actually the only place to do it, so <laughs> go there. Venmo at Dave McBride Music. Okay, we have some emails and messages from you guys that we need to catch up with. This isn't all of them for the summer, but it is most of them. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't done this in a while. I've certainly missed it. Uh, you know, and we got a lot to catch up with. So let's begin with Gary in England. Gary writes, hi, Dave. I just spotted something from episode 20 that I think you might find interesting. It's a shot of metallurgist Emma Culligan at her desk. If you look closely, you can see the spine of a book laying flat. 
The book's title is De Re Metallica, Latin for On the Nature of Metals. This book was published in 1556, and it is a treatise on the art of mining and was a standard mining textbook for nearly 200 years. Is Emma trying to sneakily send us a message? <laughs> I love, I love the, I love the conspiracy stuff here. I, I love it, especially when it comes to the show. Um, regards, Gary. Great stuff as always, Gary. What a great find. What a great post. Um, and I'll put the photo up if I still have it in my Facebook or on the Facebook page if I still have it in my email here, uh, so you guys can see and decide for yourself. I, Gary, I don't think Emma is trying to send us some sort of subtle coded message for us to uh, to decipher on our own. But I do think that Emma is probably exploring and researching each and every possibility here when it comes to ex- explaining uh, the things they're finding, including the very, very real possibility of an undocumented mining project as being the, uh, the, the, the reasons behind gold and precious metals in the water. The show just doesn't like to show us or talk much about anything that isn't somehow treasure related, but you know she's doing that. I find it an unfortunate decision by the editors to do that, and it doesn't accurately reflect to us, the viewers, what the scientists on the island are actually doing. And I think sometimes I feel if they did take the time to show us those things, then the stuff that is truly mysterious carries much more weight, right? If we do know that they are working to eliminate some of the possibilities through science. They say they do, but they hardly ever show us that. Thanks again, Gary. You always have such great insight. Great eye again. Let's stay over on the other side of the Atlantic and hear from Katie in the UK who writes, Good morning, Dave. Thank you so much for your brilliant podcast through the winter. It really makes a boring Friday at work more enjoyable. Anyway, I stumbled across a Facebook page called Oak Island from the other side of the causeway. This is a page set up by a local resident who regularly takes pictures of the big equipment and what's going on on the island. Today, I woke up to a new post with some brilliant picture of Irving's big crane at the at the garden shaft and what looks like an excavator placing large sheets in for a coffer dam in the swamp. Thought maybe some of you uh, some interest to you as I know it's already making me excited for this season looking forward to some new podcasts coming our way in the summer to tide me over until the show starts again in the autumn. Thanks Katie. Katie, I wish I had more of those in the summer. I know the ones we had were really great, but I wish I had a few more at least. Anyway, Katie that is a fantastic Facebook page. Uh, those of you who don't know what it is, um, it, and I, I keep my notifications on for this one because it is really cool. It's called Oak Island from the Other Side of the Causeway. And as she said, it's run by a resident of the area who lives, as you probably figured out, all right across the causeway from Oak Island. And they often post pictures of heavy equipment heading down the road, passing their house and going across the causeway or things like, especially things like cranes and drills either going across the causeway or when they're actually set up and they can take a picture from their vantage point. I also think sometimes they might have a boat or a drone or something that they might get because some of the pictures seem to be have a really cool vantage point, not just from a from a yard as it was kind of at the beginning. Maybe I'm getting all of this mixed up, but you see where I'm going. From these photos, we can definitely conclude that the project of damming up the swamp for a complete excavation appears to be moving forward and likely is at this point, considering it's October, coming to some sort of conclusion if it has not concluded already. It's exciting stuff for those of you who believe the swamp holds some answers. And just so I can tell you how I feel, the swamp, I believe the swamp holds some answers, 
but probably not to the treasure. Probably answers towards a history of the island that is yet to be uncovered. Thank you, Katie. Keep up the emails. Uh, it's always great. Okay, we have a couple of theories on the masked man. Do you remember this? Corey and Maul, in our interview, just go back a couple of interviews in our uh, in our feed here, a couple of episodes in our feed, and you'll see that Corey and Maul mentioned this guy, the masked man. We're talking about the expedition involving the Duke d'Anville and how during his research into this expedition, Corian discovered reports of a man escorted onto one of the ships with his face covered by a mask. Go back and have a listen. It's fascinating stuff. Here is a theory from Mike, a fellow Jersey boy, uh, on who that masked man might be. Because I did put out a uh, call for you guys to send in your theories. We got some good ones. Here it's Hi Dave, longtime listener, first time emailing. I'm a bit of a fan of clandestine stuff. By no means, not even remotely am I an expert, but Occam's Razor tells me they were likely depositing a spy for the king into the area. Spies have been a vital part of warfare since the beginning of mankind. This would have been a simple, straightforward way of doing such things. It's just a thought, and I could be completely wrong, so take it with a salt mine. <laughs> Thank you for the show, Mike from New Jersey. Yep, Mike, that seems plausible enough to me. I don't have much else to say on that. So here's another theory, this one from Warren, who writes, Hey, Dave, fantastic interview, really well done. Warren, I, thank you very much. Let me just stop here. But that interview was all Corian. <laughs> I mean, he always brings the goods. Uh, but this time he really brought it. He's got a book coming out. I've got an advanced copy that maybe or maybe not I'm supposed to tell you about. I'm in the middle of reading it now. You guys are going to love this stuff. Anyway, Warren writes, um, they could replace one of those filler episodes just with the stuff mentioned in the interview. The masked man, the four dot symbols lining up, the jaw, all great stuff. Here's my masked man theory. What if the person was an import negotiator figure on behalf of the king, sent in advance of the fleet to meet the British? Hey, British, we will have a massive fleet bearing down on you, so give up your fort and we won't kill you. They obviously said no, and we know what happened to the fleet. It was a failure, and so the details were lost immediately. Keep up the good work, Warren. Warren, another great theory. But why would they send a negotiator who was so well known to the world that they would need to cover his face? Hmm. Interesting who that might be. I mean, I'm not saying that that debunks your theory. I'm just curious. It would have to be somebody who they who a reporter or somebody would recognize. Uh, uh, certainly recognize as a spy or as a political figure, right? Somebody who's going to negotiate politically on behalf of the king. Anyway, I I, I love that. Uh, I, I think this is great. <laughs> you know, it's a great possibility. I just have some more questions maybe, Mark. So keep on working on that one. I'm sorry, Warren, keep on working on that. Speaking of Mark, let's go to Mark now. He writes, I saw a movie once about a man in an iron mask. It was set around 1700 as well. Coincidence? Could it really be? It must be the twin brother of the French king they hid away on Oak Island to protect the throne or something like that. I don't recall the whole story. Mark, uh, I think there has been actually more than one movie about the man in the iron mask and more than one theory, too, on who it might be. Uh, the movies were all based on uh, Dumas' novel, The Va the Vacom of uh, I forget how you say it. the the Vicomte of Bragelonne. Uh, the, the first film that I remember seeing was from 1939, 
But there was a recently another remake in, uh, in the 90s, like 1998 or so, with Leonardo DiCaprio and I think Jeremy Irons. But the one I remember the most was the 1970s version with Richard Chamberlain. It was something, the whole story is something of a sequel to Dumas' Three Musketeers, right? And it tells the story of Louis XIV, the Sun King, actually having a twin brother named Philippe, I believe, who was hidden away from the public and placed in an iron mask so there would be no challenge to Louis' claim to the throne. Could the French have sent Philippe across the Atlantic to keep him from the public? Well, if they really wanted to hide somebody, <laughs> you know, that's certainly a better place than right in the middle of Paris, right? Which is where the movie said he was. The obvious issue here, my friend, is that this was a novel. Now, yes, there was actually a man in an iron mask that nobody knew exactly who it was. There actually was a prisoner during the reign of Louis XIV who was imprisoned in an iron mask for something like 30 years <laughs> and whose identity was never revealed even after his death and even after the death of, the, of Louis the Sun King, right? Conspiracy theorists and historians have been arguing and debating and just loving this whole whole idea over who this actually was for centuries and centuries. But the problem is the man in the Iron Mask died in 1705. That's decades before Don Veal's expedition to North America. So it could mean that, uh, you know, it was somebody else with whom they used the same kind of... <laughs> prison idea. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to even say it. Anyway, they're all great theories, guys. Yes, there might be a very reasonable non-treasure related explanation for this strange event, but you simply have to add it to the pile of strange and clandestine things associated with this particular expedition. And that pile seems to be getting bigger and bigger all of the time. No, a man with a black mask getting on a ship to North America doesn't prove anything about treasure, but it does make the expedition, which we're talking about, even more intriguing. And really, something of a suspect in the investigation, if you're going through that angle, right? Again, thank you all. That masked man certainly fires the imagination, doesn't he? Anyway, let's continue right now. We'll go to Greg, who writes, Hi, Dave. Big fan of your show and a new patron here. Thank you so much, Greg. Just wanted to thank you for keeping me up to date with the goings on in Oak Island. I haven't watched the show in years, but checking my phone almost daily to see if you released a new pod. The mystery of the island is fascinating to me, but I lost interest in the TV show aspect of it. I find the Gordon Fader Joy Steel theory the most likely, and if the show decides to seriously go down that road, I'll likely return. Until then, I'll stay informed through the pod. Please keep up the hard work. Your show is fantastic, and I look forward to every episode. Thanks again for all the hours of entertainment. Best from Florida, Greg. Greg, thank you so much. Thank you for your email. Thank you for listening, but more so, thank you for supporting us as a patron. Welcome to the family, and don't forget about those live chats I mentioned earlier. Really great fun. New episodes will be here again before you know it, guys. Keep listening because I can also almost promise you <laughs> that Joyce Steele and Gordon's theory, Gordon Fader's theory is not coming to the Curse of Oak Island anytime soon, but there will be a lot of really cool stuff this year. I don't want to reveal too much, but I've got some, got some ideas out of what might be coming. Anyway, keep those, keep those emails coming. Anyway, finally, uh, another one from our old friend, uh, Warren, who writes, Hey Dave, I have heard your comments about things that are found, made a big deal of, and then they quietly disappear, never to be heard of again. I know you don't watch the other big Prometheus show, Skinwalker Ranch, but the scientist, Travis, made a brazen statement about some object captured on camera, and it turned out to be a bird. 
not a fast-moving UFO. But he came out and said it on a wrap-up show. We were all quite impressed that he did this, and it didn't just quietly disappear. I think a really good concept for an Oak Island wrap-up show would be to have one dedicated to hits and misses, especially the misses. Admit what objects turned out to be incorrectly identified after further scientific investigation. This would give huge credibility to the process. I would absolutely watch this, Warren. Warren, great stuff. Uh, You're correct in a couple things. Number one, I would absolutely watch that. And again, I'll add this, which I said before. I think it not only lends credibility to the show, but lends even more credibility to the things they cannot explain. Right. The fact that every single item that is brought up is treated as if it is some sort of connection to the Knights Templar and the treasure makes people doubt the credibility of the show and what they're being told uh, for better or for worse. And And I'm not saying it does for me. I'm saying it does for a lot of people. You're also correct, my friend, that I don't watch that show that you're talking about. So I wasn't aware of this. But that is a nice little nugget of information. I'm not sure what you mean by a wrap-up show, but I'm going to assume that it's something similar to the Matty Blake stuff we get on Oak Island, right? If I'm correct about that, then in my book, they get no credit for this. Uh, Not at all. The kind of information that you're talking about should be included in the actual episode where they present this evidence to their audience, and it should not be shoved off in some later wrap-up show that most people won't remember And most people may not even watch. I know those shows do not get anywhere near the ratings that the actual proper shows themselves do. So putting it on something like that is almost a way of hiding it and hiding it away from those so that we could so that the the unsuspecting viewer still thinks there's something mysterious about what they saw. Um, If Travis knew this was true for a wrap up show, then he most likely also knew it. Before the show where they prevented this or presented, I'm sorry, the video actually went to air because it has to go through the editing process and all that kind of stuff. This these shows happen long after they go to air long after they're filmed. Instead, again, what they're hoping for and likely achieved, mind you, was that a decent percentage of viewers who saw the original evidence never actually saw it get debunked and therefore continued to think that whatever this was, was, as you say, a fast moving UFO as it was presented to them. And I find just that whole idea to be dishonest. Again, I always point to the Roman pylum, right? Just to review, during season six of The Curse of Oak Island, the team found a pointed piece of iron, which Gary Drayton originally thought might be a crossbow bolt. Later in the season, the team showed it to an antiques expert named Gabriel Vandervoort, who said it was a Roman pylum. That's the metal tip of one of those long spears you see Roman soldiers use. If I remember correctly, they'd stick them out behind their uh, shield, from behind their shields as the phalanx moved, right? These long spears. The problem is, Mr. Vandervoort was wrong, but the show didn't actually tell us that he was wrong until Matty Blake said it in some passing comment on a preseason show that not very many people watch. So we also never heard how they concluded the expert was wrong, nor did they really tell us what it ever really was. They never came to the conclusion of what this was they were looking at. They just sort of left it there. And that bugs me to no end. So let me amend what I said before slightly and say it like this. Travis gets credit for doing the work. 
and debunking the evidence, right? And I think the Oak Island team do as well, but the producers and the editors get zero credit for how they handle it. That's just my take. Instead, they're just using it as more fuel to the fire, and it ends up being more fuel to the fire for those who believe Prometheus is essentially being dishonest about much of what we see on television. And for those of you in the Oak Island uh, social media community know that is a big set of people who watch this show. Anyway, thank you so much, Warren, for the email. Great stuff as always. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along to digginoakisland at gmail.com. All right. When we last left our examination of the Oak Island Treasury timeline, it was 1899. And the Oak Island Treasure Company, like all who came before them, after repeated attempts to stop the flooding at the money pit, ran out of funding and were forced to pack up their stuff and leave the island defeated. But during their time on the island, the treasure company did find something significant, or at least possibly significant. The company's drilling expert, a man named William Chapel, while drilling in the money pit, hit wood at 126 feet down, then a layer of iron. And after being able to make their way around the iron, they got down past 150 feet where they hit what they determined to be some kind of cement. Then, directly underneath the cement, the drill passed through five inches of wood. After drilling through the wood, they came across something they would eventually come to theorize as metal in small bits, such as coins. This feature, or whatever in the world it was, uh, would become known down the ages as the Chapel Vault. The problem is the Oak Island Treasure Company never managed to reach said vault. So after finding something so enticing and seeming, uh, you know, and, and made out and seemingly out of place, right? If I'm getting tongue-tied a little bit here, how could Frederick Blair, the Oak Island Treasure Company's leader, stop searching now? How could he stop after finding something like that? So in the years after the company left the island, Blair actually maintained his lease on the money pit and also was the holder of the treasure trove license associated with the money pit. So, but he no longer had the funds himself to continue the search. So enter into the picture a New York engineer named Henry Livingston Bowden, who was convinced, <laughs> like all who came before him and all that would come after him, that he and he alone, with his soon-to-be piles of money, uh, you know, would be the and and of course, with that piles, those piles of money have the latest and best technology. He alone would be able to find the treasure. So Bowden started raising money and began what he called the Old Gold Salvage and Wrecking Company. And when I say he was convinced he could find the treasure, I'm not kidding. He was really convinced. Let me just read to you some of the company's prospectus, essentially the document used to convince people to invest in the company and buy shares in it for like a dollar a piece, I think it was. Bowden writes that there is some sort of treasure there has been verify, verified by gold shavings and part of, of a watch chain brought up with borings from the crude implements used. It's <laughs> just going to stop here. You like the way he says crude as if his implements are going to be much better than those ones that were crude. Anyway. He continues, see, these borings were made. The parties have made regular payments on the lease of the pro on the property, which gives them the exclusive right to any treasure that might be found, which lease has been further augmented by a government permit. Now, here's where it gets good. Believing from the above and from other facts that a treasure of some value is buried in the pit 
on Oak Island, Nova Scotia, and knowing that with modern methods and machinery, the recovery of that treasure is easy, ridiculously easy. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure what it says, but it says something about Henry Bowden, the man, you know, the man himself, that he thinks this would all be ridiculously easy. I mean, ridiculously. I love the use of that word. He writes so uh, so formally until he gets to ridiculously easy. I mean, remember, people, um, folks had been searching and digging and dying on Oak Island for over a century by this point, a century. Yet this guy really thinks that it's going to be ridiculously easy. Oh, and he's not done with his hubris. The prospectus concludes with this funny little nugget. The recovery of the treasure would yield 4,000% on the entire capital stock. And as operations should begin in May or June and completed in four weeks, should be available this summer. Now, folks, let me say this. As much as I like poking a little fun at the confidence and the hubris of a person like Henry Livingston Bowden, Believe me when I tell you that he was by no means the only or even the most arrogant of confident guys to begin searching for the Oak Island treasure. This is somewhat par for the course for treasure hunters the world over, not just in Oak Island, everywhere. They are all confident that they can do it or they wouldn't even try, right? We talk a lot on this podcast about the psyche of treasure hunters, and this is just another great example of that. Bowden even thought that after he recovered the Oak Island treasure, the company would have time later that year to use those funds from the treasure to go and recover even more treasures in quote-unquote southern waters. I presume he's talking about shipwrecks in the Caribbean. Now, despite the prospectus making this entire endeavor sound nothing more like nothing more than a proverbial layup, uh, Bowden came nowhere near selling the $250,000 worth of shares he was hoping for. However, he did manage to secure an investment from a 27-year-old Manhattan law clerk named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt was fascinated with buried treasure, and he was also well aware of the Oak Island mystery. But keep in mind, Roosevelt was not involved in the day-to-day operations of the old gold salvage and wrecking company. He wasn't climbing down into the money pit with a hard hat and a pickaxe. He did, however, visit the island a couple of times, mainly because he was, like us, fascinated by the mystery. And if we had the chance, wouldn't we do that? One of those visits would produce that photo that we've all come to know and love and see pretty much any time anyone (laughs) mentions Oak Island, right? So in August of 1909, despite being way short of the money he originally thought he needed to dig, Bowden and his buddies headed north to Nova Scotia and set up their command center, which they named Camp Kid. Now, I only mention that as a reminder that even in this 20th century treasure hunting group, right, these guys still believed that they were looking for the treasure of the late Captain Kid. But I digress. Now, remember. Bowden was unable to secure anywhere near the funding he was hoping for and presumably felt he needed in order to make this whole thing, quote unquote, (laughs) ridiculously easy. Can't help but laughing about that. Nonetheless, 
The old gold salvage and wrecking company began their search in late summer. They started trying to shut off the flooding, but predictably were unable to either locate the source of the flooding at Smith's Cove or properly drain the money pit, mostly due to the aforementioned lack of funds, if I'm if I'm honest. Uh, so they sent a diver down into the money pit who reported basically that the whole thing was a huge, twisted mess down there. Bowden decided to then dynamite the bottom and start clearing out the tons of wood and junk, which he assumed was standing between him and the vault. With that done, they then began drilling a series of boreholes to try and locate the vault and those very enticing small bits of metal they were expecting to find down there. We'll let Bowden explain this for himself as to what happened next. This is from an article he wrote, and that was published in Collier's Magazine in 1911, which we'll talk about much more in just a second. But Bowden writes, We struck cement six inches to ten inches thick at depths of 146 feet to 149, but no traces of boxes, treasure, or anything of that kind. The The cement was analyzed by Professor Chandler of Columbia University and found to be natural limestone pilled by the action of water. We housed the machinery and gear and left Oak Island November 4th, 1909. So like he said there, with his money gone, Bowden and the old gold salvage wrecking company left Oak Island defeated in November of 1909, not even a year later, not even no much less than a year later for sure. Apparently, however, his plan for the future was to actually try and raise more money and come back to continue the dig, but raising more funds for what was apparently a failed expedition to anyone who had, you know, tried it before, must not have been an easy thing to do, especially considering that he couldn't even raise them before he spent thousands of dollars only not to locate the treasure. Nonetheless, Bowden asked Blair for an extension on the contract to dig. Blair responded that he would be happy to do so, that he would happy be happy to allow Bowden that extension if he could prove he actually had the funding this time. But Bowden obviously could not do that. And thus, the two men began an argument that resulted in Bowden writing and publishing the aforementioned Collier's Magazine article entitled Solving the Oak Island Mystery, the hundred, uh, Solving the Mystery of Oak Island, the Hundred Year Search for the $10 million supposed to have been buried by pirates. Now, according to Blair, Bowden threatened to tell the world that there was no treasure on Oak Island if Blair didn't let him continue digging. And that's exactly what happened. So... You know, you could take what Bowden is saying as sour grapes and a little with a little bit of a grain of salt, but the article itself is not entirely without merit. Let me read you just the conclusion to the article. You can certainly look it up and find it for yourself. But he he concludes in six parts. He writes, first, there was never a pirate or other treasure buried on the money pit in Oak Island because A, there was no need to bury it so deep. B, below the cribbed part of the pit is a natural formation, which would not be the case if filled in. And C, our borings prove it. Second, there is no tunnel from Smith from the Money Pit to Smith's Cove because A, it's over 600 feet to Smith's Cove, while but only 150 feet to the nearest shore on that side of the island. B, it would have been a long and tremendous operation to dig such a tunnel by hand over 100 feet underground. C, the opening or drain could not have been kept open on a sea beach. Third, water did not reach the money pit through a tunnel because A, water was always struck at the level of 17-foot strata of coarse gravel and sand. 
B, it was salt water and percolated through the bay, through from the bay 150 feet away. C, the more it was pumped, the easier it came, the sand settling to the bottom of the strata, the clay above remaining intact. Fourth, there was never a ring bolt on the beach because A, it was easier to tie a line to an oak tree than to drill a hole in a rock and set it in a ring bolt. B, there was still a number of large oak trees at Smith's Cove. Fifth, no borings ever brought up links of chain or anything valuable because A, such things do not stick to a flat chisel or auger through 120 feet of water. That's a good point. B, different operators found the treasure at different depths from 110 feet to 150 feet, all in a five by seven hole. The treasure must have been must have dropped 40 feet. C, the sheepskin parchment was not found by the man who did the boring. The borings were sent to the home office of the company and the first examination showed nothing. A later examination was made and the sheepskin parchment was discovered. I understand that more stock was then sold and most work done without result. Sixth, there was never any characters on the rock found in the money pit because A, the rock being hard, they could not wear off. B, there are a few scratches, etc., made by the Creighton employees as they acknowledge, but there is not and never was a system of characters carved on the stone. Now, again, folks, the article that he's writing here is filled with errors, a lot of omissions, and is quite obviously the result of some serious sour grapes on Bowden's part. I concede all of that, right? But the skeptics will find quite a bit in, the, <laughs> in his conclusions to nod their heads in agreement with, right? And it's hard to dispute some of his logic. Look at a couple of examples of what I mean. Let's start with the section where he says there is no tunnel from the money pit to Smith's Cove because it's over 600 feet to the Smith's, to Smith's Cove while 150 feet to the nearest shore on the side of the island. Also, it would have been long and tremendous operation to dig such a tunnel uh, by hand of over 100, and f- uh, 100 feet underground. I mean, come on, guys. That logic is pretty sound, don't you think? Why dig a 650-foot tunnel by hand for a booby trap when you can dig a much shorter one <laughs> presumably could accomplish the same goal? And I've always said the biggest obstacle for me in believing in this booby trap system and the box drains and all that is just how incredibly difficult a project it must have been. Could it have been done back then? Sure, it could have. It's very possible. But for that purpose that it's supposed to have served, was it really worth the risk and expense and time when other options could have been available? The entire thing always seemed quite a stretch to me, just like the 90-foot stone does, which we're going to get to in a second. Bowden also makes a reasonable argument disputing the idea of bringing up gold chain links on the end of an auger, saying, quote, such things do not stick to a flat chisel or auger through 120 feet of water. Now, I don't know if this assessment is true or not, but I got to tell you, his logic kind of makes a little bit of sense to me. I mean, that seems logical enough that it would not stick while coming up through that much water. And as we also see here, Bowden shares my skepticism of the story of the 90-foot stone. And this is a guy who actually had the chance to view and examine it in person before it was mysteriously lost to time. As he says, quote, There are a few scratches, etc., made by the Creighton employees, as they acknowledged, but there is not and never was a system of characters carved on the stone. 
Again, guys, I remind you that this stone was in existence and its location documented for well over a hundred years and into the 20th century, yet no one ever bothered to take a picture. No one ever bothered to make an etching or tracing or anything of the characters on it to preserve it for reality's sake, you know, in the future. It's, it's always strange, you know, uh, it's always a crazy thing when you ask yourself why no one bothered to preserve it. This was the most important piece of evidence ever found in the money pit that backs up a treasure theory, right? This was it. This is all anyone ever found to make people think that there might actually be a treasure down there and something worth digging for. This is the one and only item that should have been paraded by any hopeful treasure hunter in front of every prospective investor they were hoping to earn the support of. Yet instead of being carefully preserved for such a purpose, like anyone would expect it to be, it was installed inside a working fireplace and then had the snot beat out of it when it was apparently used to beat leather on it at a book bindery. Now, does this sound like... Anyone down the years who was in possession of this stone actually thought it was incredibly important and it was a, a an artifact that should be preserved? I mean, does that, does that lead us to believe that these people think that this was it, that this was the stone that said there was 10 million pounds buried or whatever it says? Because then it just disappears. It's beaten up, it's destroyed, and it disappears. Folks, this is the stone inscribed with coded characters that they believe said, and now I remember, two million pounds are buried. And somebody lost it? Really? (laughs) Come on. It's not hard to believe Bowden's account here, even if it is somewhat sour grapes. Needless to say, uh, Blair never let Bowden back on the island again. They didn't get along very well after that. But I would be remiss not to also mention that despite Bowden's article and despite his very public, uh, you know, debunking of the mystery, interest in the Oak Island mystery never really did cool down. At the risk of stating the obvious, the proof of that lies only in the continuation of the search for the next century and more and the creation of this podcast. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can help us out by uh, becoming a patron of the show. If you think this episode and this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Uh, just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you'd like to help out the show in another way and really help us out, then one of the best ways you can do that is by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and writing a review on Apple if you can, or anywhere you get your shows. Uh, that really helps to get the word out on the show. We always like to have more listeners. And a big thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star rating already. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Thank you especially for the kind words. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just put in at Diggin Oak Island, not on Twitter much. Sorry, I may actually close that because I don't really have much interest in Twitter. I do prefer Facebook. It allows me to be sort of a one-stop shop here for that. But anyway, if you have any questions or comments, uh, you can 
send me a direct message through Facebook and Twitter, or the best way to do it is via email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And folks, keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if for whatever reason you don't want your message read to the audience, please make a note for that. A note of that for me. Well, folks, as Dave Blankenship used to say, it is crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.